afternoon, everybody. Episode 22, Taking Stock After the Bell. Um, delighted to be joined, as always, by James Hughes, investment manager, colleague. Um, he's uh, recovered from his minor head injury. Um, and we're absolutely delighted to be joined by Freddie Late. Um, Freddie, good afternoon. Freddie is the managing partner at Latitude Investment Management, Management and the portfolio manager on the Horizon and Global Funds. Uh, before founding Latitude, he was a fund manager at OD Asset Management. Prior to this, Freddie spent two years at Rothschilds as a fund manager and a member of the investment committee, no less. Uh, initially worked at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. We uh, were recently on the road at Goldman's uh, podcast there. First away trip. Yeah. Uh, where he was an analyst focusing on UK, US equities and long-term asset allocation modelling. Uh, Freddie holds an MA in maths from Oxford and is a CFA charter holder. Delighted for you to join us. Very good to be here. So you didn't work very hard at school at all, did you? <laughs> <laughs> Still working hard. I'm yeah. doing something wrong. Yeah, quite. <laughs> I think um, I think probably where we wanted to kick off, Freddie, one of the themes on the podcast uh, has been uh, changing the world. We'll come on to that, though. But I think this kind of this story about the Magnificent Seven and US equities powering everything else and, you know, where you sit in terms of obviously being a very good year for the, the biggest stocks in the world in the US market. They now make up 17% of the global equity market, and they are up collectively about 100% probably. So if you didn't own them this year, it's not, probably not looking too clever for you, despite the last month, which has been a lot better, actually. It's been mm. comforting. So, I mean, where do, you, where do you sort of stand in terms of, you know, how you see those businesses and, you know, their prospects going forward? Which is a nice, straightforward question. Yeah, I mean, look, they are slightly different businesses, the Magnificent Seven, these big technology shares, um, and they're basically great businesses. Um, you know, they have strong market positions, strong competitive advantages, are growing nicely, have structural as well as cyclical growth. Most of them are quite cyclical, which I think people underestimate their mm. cyclicality, but they're, they're strong, entrenched businesses in our world. You can't imagine we're going to stop using Netflix or stop using Google, or stop using Apple, or stop using you know Microsoft products. So they're great businesses, but I think it's highly unimaginative if they're the only seven you can find in the world that are growing, have demonstrable competitive advantages, and have room to grow over the next 10 to 20 years as well. And that's what we see as mm. the, the problem here, that because they're so popular, they're pretty expensive, and some of them <clears throat> the highest they've ever been in terms of valuation yeah. compared to history. <laughs> at a time when they're already very large and there is some cyclicality in the businesses which could come to pass if we hit a recession in the next, or whenever we do, in the next year or two. Mm. So they're priced slightly for perfection and they've got a bit of a premium as this kind of like a rare whiskey or something that's not quite worth it, but it's there because it's rare. People are putting a too high a valuation multiple on these stocks because there's only a few mm. of them. And we would basically just say it's highly unimaginative. Is that because the rest of the market uh, is it a sort of defensive trade by the Magnificent Seven in the sense that the rest of the market looks mm, okay-ish, but not you know great, and maybe we're going to get a recession, and therefore we want to be hiding in Microsoft, which is probably going to grow at ten percent if you have a recession or not? Is, is there an element to that? Absolutely. I mean, I've heard them hawked as as the defensive trade because of that. You know, they will grow probably, <clears throat> and I, I probably have sympathy with that. They probably will grow. Um, I've seen it obviously as the only source of growth being AI for the next few years, everyone wanting exposure to the artificial intelligence boom. So that sort of hype cycle, it's the best way to play it is the incumbents at the moment because all of the disruptors are still private. Mm. They're multi-billion dollar businesses, but they are private at the moment, so you can't invest in them. Um, 
So yeah, they, they have all sorts of sort of reasons to own it. And I'm not anti- we own um, Alphabet, Google's holding company. So you know we are still invested in one. We've owned most of them in the past, and we just have this model in in our portfolio where, you know, if a stock's gone up too much and we see it as too expensive for the growth we expect, and we're quite bullish on all these companies, if we think it's too expensive for the growth we expect, and we've got something else which we think is competitively advantaged and has 10, 20 years growth, that's more interesting and lower risk for our clients. And I think. Yeah. That's what's been ignored in the last year or two. There's a lot of other businesses that are growing yeah. and improving their business positions very substantially, demonstrably, and aren't being rewarded for it mm-hmm. at the moment. But over time, they always are, because over time, the price of a stock always follows the underlying earnings and cash flow. Glad you mentioned that. We've uh, we've got a chart on just that, which oh. you kindly sent to us. So um, the blue bars here on this chart show Earnings per share since 1954. Is this the S&P 500? Is it US mm-hmm. market data? And then in orange overlaid is the price performance of those shares. And we can see that over the long term, they pretty much match. Absolutely. Meaning that the performance of a share is pretty much down to the performance of its earnings and its underlying business. And uh, how do you how do you think about this in terms of? I mean, there, there are a few periods here where the lines do diverge. So one interesting bit to this is the 60s and early 70s where price performance probably outdid um, earnings growth and again to a degree in the late 90s sort of nifty 50 is something that we've referenced in the past in the 60s and 70s where you had the IBMs and the Coca-Colas and the Eastman Kodaks um, trading on kind of silly multiples do you think that there's a fair comp there bringing it back to the magnificent seven Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you can look at this chart and say, okay, that's easy. We just need to buy businesses that are going to grow their earnings and we'll have the same performance. But as you can tell, if you eyeball the chart, um, uh, if you can see it, there were were really flat decades, Mm. a flat decade from mid 60s to mid 70s, a flat flat decade from the noughties to 2012. And so, you know, we have these periods where you don't actually get rewarded for the underlying Mm. growth and you have to be a very patient investor, which is something we believe in wholeheartedly. Obviously, the week mm. that Charlie Munger died, you know, mm. the source of font of all wisdom on being patient and thinking behaviorally, intelligently and rationally about the market. This is true, and this will be true over the next 30 years, that if you have a portfolio or a stock whose earnings per share grow at about 10 to 12%, mm. your price performance will be about 10 to 12%. And if you are paying a very low multiple today, it may be slightly better than that. If you're paying a very high multiple today, it may be slightly worse. Mm. This is true for cash flow as well, and cash earnings uh, are, are sort of comparable. But the difference in return structures in a forward-looking basis all pretty much comes down to valuation. If the market starts at a cyclically high point, like it did in 65 or like it did in 2000, you are in most likely in for a very, very weak decade of returns. And if it starts at a cyclically low point, like it did in 82 or it did in 2003, mm-hmm. you are likely in for a 10 or 20-year period of stronger returns. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have obviously the Magnificent Seven today, which I would have some experience. There's nothing wrong with having a little bit of exposure. We have one of those stocks, but I wouldn't be, you know, put 50% of my portfolio into that. There is another ill-defined sort of nifty 50 today as well. The same stocks that make up most people's mm. top 10. Um, and again, they are great businesses. The nifty 50 were in general great businesses. Yeah. But the, the most pro- of them survived as well. And most of them survived yeah. and some and of them thrived. thrived. Yeah. Um, but what you saw was that those businesses 
Uh, and you know these were across a wider spectrum of sectors than just technology like we have in the MAG7, and this is true today. Um, they did outgrow the market. Mm. For the next 10 years, they outgrew the market by about 3 or 4% a year. So the businesses did better than the mm. average business by mm -hmm. 3 or 4% a year. Mm -hmm. Yet the performance of them as a basket was 3 or 4% worse than the market. market. And that wasn't some shocking crash. It, well, you know, and I'm, We're not here sitting to tell you that there may or may not be a crash. Who yeah. knows about that? Yeah. But your return will be eroded somewhat if you overpay when you start investing. And yeah. that's the biggest risk for some of these stocks. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, and kind of on that theme, here's the, um, here's the couple of, we're, we're long past Halloween, but here are a couple of Halloween charts that uh, you sent us. So there's a model here in orange of, of implied um, forward returns on the S&P 500 um, going back to December 1965 and, and the actual S&P 500 price. Um, and if we kind of zoom in on the present, it looks very much like the S&P 500 is trading quite a long way above the implied price, suggesting that the market is a little bit overvalued. Yeah. Do you that, want to talk us through this? Yeah, sure. If you wouldn't mind jumping one slide ahead, yeah. what we've shown on this one is um, something called the cyclically adjusted PE ratio. Mm. It's put together by an academic called Schiller. And what, what it's doing is it's really showing you how expensive the market is compared to the average of the last 10 years earnings. Mm -hmm. So, you know, where in the cycle of valuations are we? And it's inverted on this chart. So if it's at the bottom of the chart, that's the most expensive. And you can see the dot-com bubble really standing out there. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can also see 1982, I assume, looking quite inexpensive. Mm. And so what this is, and then the blue line is the 10-year forward return from the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. So what it generated over 10 years, and the axis may be a bit slight, but it's on the right-hand side, this number. So if the blue, the blue line is showing you that today, the annualized return for the last 10 years has been about 10%. Yep. That's where it is. Mm. But what the, the valuation today is telling you is that the return for the next decade is likely to be closer to 2 to 3%. And so if we go back to the previous chart, you can build an implied forward channel. So oh, yeah. that orange line creates this orange yep. line. And it tells you where the valuation will imply the market's fair value is in mm -hmm. 10 years' time. And so you can see it correctly anticipated that flat market in 1965-75, correctly predicted it 2000-2012, and we believe it's got good reason to be followed with some intent. I mean, it's not some kind of voodoo. It's not going to be bang on accurate, but it seems highly likely that you're swimming with against the tide buying S&P 500 shares today, and that given that they're, as you say, 17% of the world market, that would imply 30% of the US market, these seven stocks, and they are expensive compared to history, they are one of the main culprits as to why this is true. Mm. So again, it's just, it's not saying we know why they may struggle or they definitely will. It's that the risk they may keeps us away from them. Mm. And this is obviously market cap weighted. That's market terms. cap weighted. Would it look quite different if we did an equal weighted S&P? So on a spot basis, the equal weighted S&P is probably two multiple points cheaper, yep, okay. two and a half multiple points cheaper now, something like that. So, so does that bring it into range? It would almost? help it a bit. Yeah, it would, it would probably move the, well, let's think about it, if it was three, three it would be 20%, it would probably take it up another 2% annualized. So instead okay. of being a 3% forward return, it might be closer to five. Okay, yeah. I mean, I guess my kind of pushback on that is that um, comparing businesses in 2023 to businesses in 1970 or 1980 is not always representative in the sense that, you know, a lot of the things that we talked about that Charlie Munger and Buffett talk about, moats and margins and 
you know, the different types of businesses. You know, we're not we're not all banks and metal bashes and steel companies and railroad companies in the same way that we were in the sixties and seventies. And therefore, you know, valuations have got structurally higher over time for reason of, for some potential good reasons. I mean, admittedly within a range. Um, and a, and a sort of chart that I pulled out that I wanted to kind of um, 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 show was how. U.S. companies are structurally more profitable here. So if we take a look at the chart here, we've got return on equity, which is essentially, when I mean, both charts essentially are um, margins on the bottom pane, show how profitable companies are, mm-hmm. essentially. And, and U.S. companies are broadly more <coughs> profitable, both versus the rest of the world, and than they have been 10, 15, 20 years ago. I mean, is that a sort of fair way of thinking about it in terms of explaining some of that valuation? So... There's two things in there. There's the margin mm-hmm. structure and there's also the quality of the business. And I think the thing to remember is that every single year in the 100 years of history we're showing, the businesses were seen as innovative, cutting edge, forefront, stable. How could Standard Oil ever end? How could, you know, Exxon, you know, how can these businesses ever end? How can Nokia ever lose its dominance in phones? How can <laughs> Eastman Kodak ever die? Um, how can Apple and, sorry, um, you know, Coca-Cola and all the other staples of those days that were, Coca-Cola was growing at 25, 30% a year at that point. Mm. It was dominating the world. Brands were eating the world. So it's been true that at any given time, if you read the Forbes articles, it would be talking about these businesses, our modern businesses are undisruptable. And yet capitalism has a way of always struggling, you know, causing successful businesses to struggle, uh, which is a good thing. But it's a challenging thing from a stock market investor's perspective. So there have always been reasons. Um, I think the dot-com bubble is an unfair example because that was a bit of a mania Mm -hmm. because there wasn't really fundamentals to back it up. Um, (coughs) But I'm not so convinced about the necessarily the sort of quality of business being demonstrably better than it has been in the past. Mm -hmm. On the margin point, it is true, and this is a sort of 20-year chart, and this is a 100-year chart um, showing you the margin progression. And margins are really quite near their highs. And so if you believe they're going to stay there, and therefore the return on capital will probably be higher because return on capital, if you break it down, is is dependent on the margin, then they can generate faster growth in the future. They reinvest at higher rates of return and and they can make more money. So the big question is, in your confidence in them staying at this level. So if they do, I would argue you're right, they are. They do justify a higher valuation. Sorry, not your right, but your sort of your, 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 your premise is correct. Um, I would believe. I believe these are not going to stay here. I believe margins are set to fall over the next decade, and I think there's a sort of empirical sort of reason, which is you know if you just look back over history, and again through nearly a hundred years of innovation and challenge and technology and productivity improvement and then war and famine and chaos and everything else there was a reasonably mean reverting series and then you saw one major change in 2000 around 2000 which was when china entered the wto mm-hmm. creating a whole new source of revenue mm-hmm. selling to china and also much much lower cost inflation than you should have had from offshore labor and offshore manufacturing and offshore production yeah. so you widened your margin substantially through that period it was interrupted by the financial mm-hmm. crisis but then it had been falling already and mean reverting from 2010, yeah. which was when global trade as a percentage of GDP peaked. It's been falling since then. And then we've just seen this sugar rush of 200 basis points post-COVID when the government just printed money and gave it to everybody. And that led to much faster revenue growth than you saw cost growth. 
But now what we're seeing, especially from a bottom-up perspective, is much more cost inflation seeping through. So to get into the present, wage inflation, yeah. commodity price inflation, yeah. Yeah. increased taxes, increased depreciation costs as you have to replace your capital stock at a higher mm. price, higher interest mm. costs, those are all margin diluted. And I can't really see the justification for higher margins. Mm -hmm. So in terms of symmetric risk from here, I think it's highly skewed to the downside. Then you just have to attach a probability in where you think it may get to. So we're nervous about the level of margins that companies are owning in aggregate. I guess, yeah, a kind of a, a bearish thesis for next year would be that the S&P is currently forecast to grow at earnings at 10% in 2024. But if you're, you know, if inflation is lower, if you think about it, if you think about a company, sales growth generally runs at the rate of nominal GDP in the aggregate, so inflation plus real GDP. Yep. Well, if inflation is coming down, yep. nominal GDP growth is coming down. So sales growth can't be as high as it's been mm -hmm. in, say, 2021 and 2022. Absolutely. And you've got the lagged impact of rising costs because you can't keep your labour costs down forever. Um, you have to pay a bit of interest on your debt now because interest rates are now 5%. Exactly. Um, and depreciation charges higher. That's quite an interesting um Interesting sort of anecdote. I, I saw my father yesterday, and he's a farmer, and, and machinery replacement is quite a big part of our business because yeah. you have to buy very expensive combines. But if your combine was two hundred and fifty thousand pounds five years ago, and you're now coming up to change it, it's now three hundred and fifty. Exactly. Ooh, that's quite a big hit on the depreciation going up. Hits your depreciation and really hits your cash flow. And yeah, yeah, because you only get that cash back over the next five over years. The next, yeah, and of course you've now got to pay a lot more to finance it as well. Exactly. So there is quite an interesting thing. Maybe that sugar rush for the last two years in terms of corporate profits, maybe that does unwind. And maybe the bare case for next year is that 10% earnings growth figure that is still pretty much in consensus mm. is optimistic. I don't know if you've seen one of those wonderful charts of earnings forecasts at the beginning of the year of the S&P, but it's <laughs> 10, 10 to 11% every starts. single yeah. year. Yeah. Um, and then we just figure out where we get to. But I mean, I, this chart it might be more helpful to go to your chart, actually, the one you, you put together on margins. Just to sort of see, so you know, from the kind of level before, from, so this from, is what's, this is last twelve months. So the top one is oh, ROE. That's ROE. So from here yeah. to here, I mean, yeah. it's already coming down. Is the point? Yeah. You are seeing it start to come down, um, and if that falls another hundred basis points, margins are what eleven, ten in the US. Mm. That's ten percent off earnings. Off earnings. So that's the yeah, whole yeah, yeah. estimated growth rate yeah, for next yeah, year yeah. done. If it yeah. just yeah. comes down a little bit, um, <coughs> and so you know, I. The way we look at things is always a sort of balance of probabilities mm -hmm. and trying to get luck in your favor is a big part of investing because no one ever knows. Um, we believe starting at high valuations puts luck out of your favor. You, know, you are, you are yeah, more course, likely yeah. to struggle over time, especially over longer periods of time. And I, I would take the same on the margin point. I think if you own a business that has expanded margins aggressively in the last five or 10 years, which has been very easy to do in a low interest rate, low economic volatility environment. It's been a very easy environment to make money as a business and to make money as an investor. Um, basically, we feel that's changing mm. with economic volatility, geopolitical volatility, CapEx cycles returning, earnings volatility likely returning, mm. crazy government policies and all the rest of the stuff we've had forever. And we've, we've sort of got a bit of a, and it's not really a chart at all, um, it's something which you also put in, which I thought, and again, it's been a theme of the pod about how the world might be changing from what we've seen in the last 10, 15, 20 years of low inflation, falling interest rates, easy money, globalization, to does that reverse? Do we get deglobalization? You've got re reshoring of manufacturing to the US, you've got 
um, as it shows here, you know, US-China potential trade war, albeit uh, Xi Jinping was shaking a few hands in California last week, so he's trying to, you know, assuage those concerns. Um, we've got the Middle East. California. Yeah, we've got the <laughs> Middle East. We've got um, energy transition, which is going to take a huge amount of capex. Um, and we've got, yeah, some splintering and geopolitics, haven't we? So does that, does that sort of suggest that the next 10 years, I mean, are we right to think about the next 10 years being very different to the last 15, 20? I wholly believe so. Yeah, I think we are out of that era of zero interest rates. <clears throat> We're out of that era of buy the dip and it always carries on going up mm. into an ever higher multiple. And businesses themselves are going to find life a little bit harder. Mm. It doesn't have to be shockingly difficult. Again, I'm not, this doesn't have to be some major market crash. A lot of people think because the most recent echo is the financial crisis yeah, that there's going to be some PTSD sort of... PTSD about it, haven't we? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's true at all. I think there's, there's, there's um, banking systems in Europe and US, you know, main developed market banking systems, are far more robust than they were even pre-financial crisis. But We've also so seen how regulators have um, acted with the mini banking crisis. Exactly. And, you know, if they'd acted that quickly in the GFC, there wouldn't have been a GFC. So yeah. I think... You know, there is more protection out there for us, which is you know, is no bad thing. I think it's highly unlikely we see a financial crisis, yeah. anything like to the degree. No, we'll see pockets no, of no. you know credit defaults and things like that, but that is what you ought to see in any business cycle. Mm. So that mm. shouldn't be scary in itself, and we don't have to extrapolate it to be some negative spiral downwards. And I think, as you say, the banking sector and the regulators mm. are kind of in a position where they're willing and able to support that not mm. being some cascading event. Um, but just, you know... Imagine a world where, as you say, inflation's coming down. Maybe it does bob around, not to. Um, and underlying growth, real growth, is pretty anemic. Revenue growth for most businesses will therefore be about zero. Mm. And margins will be getting a little bit squeezed mm, yeah. because you're still paying people, you're still having the volatility. Demand is sort of softening and falling. Um, that's a really tricky environment to make money and then you'll have periodic shocks from supply chains or deglobalization or rebuilding capex or whatever else it might be it just feels like a very difficult world as we see it and yet the market at the moment is pricing in a world of basically soft landing sublime disinflation lower economic volatility and i think it's i think i take the other side of that mm. so do you think kind of when you think about structuring your portfolio um you know a lot of managers out there that have been running money for say only 10 years it's, it's all been about revenue expansion and growth and growth and growth yeah but where do you sort of start from with you know your you've obviously got you know the portfolio is constructed but but where do you see the opportunities what what sort of companies are interesting to you and and, and you know the, the types of businesses that can navigate you know the landscape you've just spoken about yeah i mean the the two primary things i think people should focus on right now well look as we showed in the very early chart, mm. yeah, you need to own growing businesses mm. if you're going to deliver a performance for your clients. So if you're going to own something for 10 years, you can't think it's going to go from 12 to 15 times and that's your story. You've got to believe in underlying yeah. growth. So yeah. all of our businesses, we believe will grow and grow durably and knowably for the reasons we have, which are protected by competitive advantages. Now, those exist in industrial, healthcare, yeah. energy, utilities, retail, consumer. They exist everywhere. Mm. And, you know... Someone like uh, Jamie Dimon, I think, runs a business that is highly competitive advantage than JP Morgan. That's a bank. There's only a very, very few banks in the world that are very good. But, but there is one. You know, mm -hmm. Michael O'Leary runs a fantastic business in Ryanair. 
in a very difficult industry. Yeah, both both those banking sector and the airline sector historically have not been very kind to shareholders. No, no I think a lot of managers have said they're uninvestable sectors. Yeah. And, and, and these it, are two managers that have completely nailed it in yeah. basic terms. Yeah, yeah, and compounded returns at sort of mm. 13, 14, 15% mm. a year for 20 years through crisis and are still trading at reasonable valuations. So those are sorts of businesses where I think it can be interesting. They're cyclical mm. examples. But in general, you need two things, according to the way I see the world in the macro slides we've just gone through. You need a margin of safety. Mm-hmm. You know, people think 22 times is inexpensive because that's what we've uh, been conditioned to think. It's, it's pretty expensive. It's 50% yeah, it's, more yeah. than average. So you could fall quite mm-hmm. substantially mm-hmm. at some point, either quickly or slowly. That can be a real drag on your return. So margin of safety. And then the second one, rather naffly, safety of margin. You need to believe that your specific analysis on the company supports them maintaining or growing their margin. You can't lazily assume that margins are just going to float higher, Mm. which is something we've been able to do as analysts over the last 10 years. Oh, yeah, they'll grow a bit and they'll add a bit of operating leverage so their margin will expand. Well, if the base case is that the whole market's margin is doing this, you've got to have a real reason, a genuine bottom-up reason for why you think you can support yours. And so... I mean, that, again, that can be very varied sectors. I mean, there's mm. a business called AutoZone who just reported this afternoon. Mm. They're an auto parts company. Um, they're, they're growing very strongly, 10, 12% a year revenue growth for the last four mm. years, 20% earnings growth over the last 10 years, faster than almost all of the Magnificent Seven, trades at 16 times earnings, highly competitively advantaged in the US, no disruptive threat. Yeah. Um, will continue, we believe, to grow at 15, 20% a year for the next five to 10 years. Mm. Again, similar to the Magnificent Seven, they sell car parts. (laughs) Yeah. And so there are other alternatives Mm. and equally successful businesses. And a dollar of earnings and a dollar of earnings growth is worth the same to an investor as long as it's durable, as long as it's got that competitive advantage. And that's the key thing. And we've got four stock examples here, um, which we'll just flash up. Um, Two on the left that you do own and Mm -hmm. two on the right that you don't own. We don't own anymore. So you own... AutoZone and Alphabet, but you yep. don't own Apple nor Microsoft. Yeah, and this is a, the, these charts are sort of a mirror of the opening chart that we had around earnings versus price performance. That's right. And we can see AutoZone and Google's share prices are remain connected to their earnings growth, yep. whereas we can see quite clearly that Apple and Microsoft's share prices become somewhat disconnected from their earnings growth. I.e., their share prices grow a lot faster than their earnings, and hence the, the valuation multiple is expanded. Exactly. Um, uh, any? Uh, do Nicole, you find your opportunities are sort of cross sector, and do you, you know are there lots of areas that you can find stocks like these at the moment? Yeah, I mean we've got. I mean I think we've got stocks from almost all sectors on our sort of list, our mm-hmm. subs bench, if you like. That's how we build our model. Is we we build up a list of sort of seventy or eighty stocks we'd love to own. We act like we own them all when we're visiting America or other countries we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll go and see all those businesses, not just the ones we own. And probably follow them for two to 10 years before mm. we buy them. Mm. And so you just wait until you get that opportunity to buy into them. And you never know where the volatility is going to come in the market. You know, people could suddenly start loving energy stocks again and they can mm. go up like they did you know, 15 years ago. Mm. Mining and energy was mm. what drove all client portfolios' uh, returns. We're very fond of the noughties commodities boom. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> started our careers. Exactly. But, you know, it was only 15 years ago. Mm. And so the concept that in the next 15 years we see another resources led boom is not out of the question. Um, And especially with the supply side dynamics in those industries really tightening, Mm. um, probably driving far higher prices. So, 
you never know which way the fads in the market and the popular stocks will perform. And what we like to do is slowly, we only buy one or two stocks a year, slowly buy the ones that are out of favour, believing that over 10 years, price will follow earnings and we mm. we can enjoy that and maybe a pickup in, in PE multiple as well. But sure. we don't bake that in. Um, I mean, another good example is Novo Nordisk, which has been the mm. most phenomenal story. Um, and we owned that for a few years and sold it about nine months ago. And it's obviously carried on going up. It's gone vertical. But it was on 40 times earnings. And there was another business on our shelf, on it was what we call our subs bench, um, called McKesson, which is mm. a, a sort of drug distribution business in America. Mm-hmm. Equally sort of, you know, nearly 100 years old, been growing at 15% a year for the last 25 years. Very solid, very strong growth business. Very easy to understand. No competitive uh, threats coming. It's trading on 13 times earnings. So the way we think about that, you can buy three times as much earnings today and then enjoy the growth in the future. So how much faster does Novo have to grow over the next 10 years to catch something that's got a three times head start? The numbers are pretty scary. And so again, we're bullish on Novo Nordisk, but we sold it Mm. because as a business, because we can do far better within our portfolio. I think that Mm. is what's being ignored a bit at the moment. Mm. Is it being ignored or just misunderstood by the types of investors well i think there's a, there's an the element to which people have written <laughs> off certain sectors so you say a lot of people say we don't do cyclical stocks um mm. which i find quite amusing because i think alphabet's cyclical stock but yeah. you know they say we don't do cyclical stocks um and we know what they mean by that they don't do airlines they don't do market, yeah. Whatever yeah. um they don't do certain other sectors um they don't like value investing and so if something's mm-hmm. cheap it must be bad rather than mm-hmm. the yeah. idea that if something's yeah. cheap it could just be cheap and mm-hmm. brilliant um, and this has worked so well mm. for 10 years and well it's worked well yeah. for 10 years phenomenally well for three or four that it feels very comforting to be reassured mm. and to continue to own these stocks so and they are and to reiterate they're great businesses you yeah. can feel consoled in that you do own some of the world's best businesses I think Microsoft is the world's best business yeah it is so dominant there's no way that any company with more than 10 employees in the world cannot live without Microsoft. And and it, dominance is becoming more entrenched because we're now also using the cloud on top of everything else that we use. Yeah. Um, I mean, Excel runs the world in my view, but um, that's by the by. To come back to that comment about Alphabet, it is quite cyclical, you're right. Um, and they do have sort of quasi-monopoly positions in certain areas, don't they? The search engine and, yeah. and, and mm. online advertising. Any sort of concerns around that? Or do you think that's just a great business and that's entrenched? Um, no, we still see a shift more and more. So, you know, e-commerce is still, I don't know what it is nowadays, 15, 20% of sales, less than that, probably going to 50 in the long term. You know, I would have thought e-commerce will continue to grow rapidly. But the way we think about that is as rent bills get shifted because you close physical store bases, the rent online is your advertising spend. Right. And so okay. to get your search engine optimization and to get that, with, rent is about 10% of sales for global retailers. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as you move e-com on, mm-hmm. you still probably grow the online advertising market as that kind of price to play on, on the internet. And Meta and Google have a duopoly in most, yeah. most areas of that. Um, so no, I don't see a huge risk to it. I see continued growth. I see continued monetization of maps and YouTube and other assets. They have, and now they have the third largest uh, and now finally slightly profitable cloud business mm. behind AWS and mm-hmm. Azure. Um, supposedly, although it's very hard <coughs> to get clarity on this, like actually better for certain functionality like AI rather than workhorse type mm. jobs like AWS. So they have a lot of interesting businesses there. Google search and ads in general will continue to dominate the business for the next five years at mm. least. But there are other avenues of growth too to support pretty, it. Pretty cyclical, isn't it? That online 
finance. I know we saw it a bit last year. They did see quite a big drop off yeah. in spend last year. Absolutely. So and I think Microsoft actually, you know, you'll be surprised, but there will be a squeeze in Microsoft. Yeah. In the and, and that's interesting. I'm talk, talk to Ben, our tech analyst, about that. You know, he's got the data. Tech spending is GDP plus. It is yeah. cyclical. But the reason it hasn't been in the last two years is because we've all gone through COVID, COVID mm. hybrid working from home. And corporates have had to continue to spend money on digital transformation projects. Totally, totally. But there, there might come a point where a corporate goes, well, actually, maybe we, that cloud transition plan that we've got in place, we might just kick it in the long grass for another year and push it out. Like maybe that kind of COVID haste of getting it done might just come to an end and, and you know, more rational decision making takes place. But it'd be interesting to see. Um, but, you know, you're right. You've got to stop Microsoft on 35 times earnings for 15 to 20% growth, 15% growth roughly. If that growth all of a sudden is naught to five, the multiple probably needs to be. You know, I sit here and think, well, what what should my what should the best business in the world be trading on relative to the market? Two times is that a bit too high? Probably one and a half times, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a good business because it's competitively advantaged and it's going to carry on growing, but it's already enormous as well. I can't remember quite the stats, but if you believe, you know, at thirty five times, it's got to grow substantially mm. uh, to justify that multiple. Um, even if it grows at 15% a year, I think it ends up taking something like 18% of the profit pool in the US in 10 years' time. <laughs> Doesn't seem likely. And that's assuming the profit pool grows at 7% a year, which it has over the last 100 years. So yeah, it, it's going to, it like that, there really is a limit for how big a business like that can become. Mm. Um, you mentioned retail, talking about online. Have you got anything in retail? AutoZone is AutoZone. half a retailer, half a retail. wholesaler. So yeah, there's a little bit there. We own Tesco's, Do you? your UK audience. Yeah. That's um, very exciting. So that's well, it's it's dull, but it's up thirty percent this year, and it's I've just sold some actually. Have you? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's performing very well, and again, it's a story of the competitive dynamics that really drives the excitement. Um, you know, the story of Tesco's in a nutshell, which I know you know, but in case is that twenty years ago it was absolutely the Amazon of its day. Mm-hmm. It was on the front cover yeah. of Forbes. Warren Buffett was the biggest shareholder. It was compounding fantastic returns. Mm-hmm. It was then reinvesting those savings back in lower prices, building out its moat. No one could compete with them. They were selling everything. They had the data in Club Card. And then in the late two, well mid two thousands, um, they started gouging on margin and just taking prices up and exploiting their market position a bit too much. The financial crisis hit, yeah. Aldi and Lidl were given oxygen to grow and got their, their footprint built out mm-hmm. and now they've been dominating because they have a much fairer value proposition. Then there was an accounting scandal as a result mm-hmm. of all this poor hit business yeah. and it took five or ten years to fix that, as it always does. Mm-hmm. Turnarounds take a very long time. But <coughs> Dave Lewis, the previous CEO, did fix that. And then since then, we've seen two of their competitors, Morrison and Asda, blow themselves up. go to incredible lengths to blow themselves up in yeah. these extraordinarily leveraged mm. private equity deals right, when interest right. rates are 1%. Yeah. And so the, the Asda bonds are trading at ATP in the pound. Um, these businesses are not going to be willing or able to compete in a price war. They're not going to be innovative and investing to come and beat you next time. Mm. And Tesco's and Sainsbury's, Sainsbury's is equally interesting, I'd say. Okay. But Tesco's probably more so, given its scale have lowered their pricing architectures substantially. Tesco's mm. is basically in line with Aldi. Now. Yes, it is. And so you've started to see market share coming back after a decade of market share erosion. Did and we, have, we had Cantar this morning, didn't we? Uh, yes, we did. With and Tesco. showed Sainsbury's slightly ahead of Tesco, but they were both yeah, looking both strong. Like one and a half, yeah. Um, no. Pays a healthy dividend. It's trading on an 8.5% free cash flow yield. We think with the buyback and dividend, you can generate 15% a year from mm. this stock. Mm. So if you're going to generate 15% a year from Microsoft, you might or 15% a year from this stock which you might 
This one's a third of the valuation. Yeah. More defensive, mm. equally dominant in its field, albeit a much less exciting much field. field. Yeah. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But, but, you know, you have to have a debate. And this is where the market's not having that debate. They're saying, well, Tesco's is an awful business. Microsoft's the best business. Well, okay, but is it, it's three times the price, the right yeah. number. Yeah, it just comes back to my point as to yeah. like what, what, what is right. What is right. And it's, it's purely a relative value. Yeah. It's something we say a lot internally when I'm giving talks mm. is there's no fair value for any asset in the world. It's all relative. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, we've seen it. it. Cash now yields five. Cash is, yeah, yeah. That's exciting. If cash yielded 20, how much would you pay for Microsoft? You don't have to answer it. But no. it's not 35 times earnings. Mm. Um, and so it's all relative. It's relative to cash. It's relative to other opportunities. And it's relative intra-stock market. And I can see why you'd pay 50% more for Microsoft than Tesco. Mm. I get that. So maybe Tesco goes up to 18 times and Microsoft comes down to 24. Mm. That's, that seems like a fair five-year guess to me. Yeah, that's fair. And that's 30% downside for Microsoft on valuation. 35, 40, actually 50% upside for Tesco's on valuation. And they both grow 15% a year while you wait. That's kind of how we see it. Mm. What about, um, you might say this is already in the price, which I probably think it is as well, but rates get cut next year. Growth becomes more valuable. Do you think that's, do you, do you think that's already there with Microsoft and Apple? And yeah, I mean, to go more you know expensive. Many, I had to write my facts this morning. Do you know how many rate cuts are priced in to America next year? It's three, four three or something four. or four. I put three because I wrote it at the beginning okay. of the month. Mm. was four two weeks ago. It's now five and a half. Yeah, I mean, oh, so, Alan said that this morning. Actually, yeah. morning okay. yeah. So it's gone from three to yeah. four to yeah. five yeah. in the time we've been talking over the last month about the podcast. Okay. So, you know, that's why the NASDAQ was up 10% yeah. in November. Yeah. Because it's there. And so the danger is... The likelihood of five cuts next year is... Well, I well, think... Well, well, you know, who knows? But they'll only we can do it. Very silly trying to predict it. But well, um, I think they'll only do it if there's a really weak economic environment. And if that's the case... Stocks don't tend to do very well in recessions. Mm. They, they normally fall 25%. Mm. Um, and I think the valuation side of it's already been baked in because mm. those, those are expected now. Changing the subject slightly. Yep. Um, I was listening to another podcast over the weekend and there was a strategist on there from an American bank who strongly believes that the Fed raising rates, cutting rates, has virtually no impact on inflation. Yep. What's your his view would be you could have virtually left rates the same and inflation would have come, come down, down anyway. to where it is anyway. In the recent three year period, I agree. Yeah. It was all the supply chain tightness. I mean, it, maybe twenty percent was rates, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But the the vast majority of it was commodity price inflation, mm. catch up inflation, and once the central banks had printed all that money in COVID, that was what led to the inflation. Mm. Yeah, they printed it. It got spent really quickly. That caused you know demand to massively outweigh supply, mm. so you saw prices go up mm. for everything: used cars, houses, mm. ketchup, whatever. Now wages, mm. um, but it hasn't really done anything raising issues. Energy prices spiked partly because of Ukraine, partly because of supply side. Mm. So it is a monetary phenomenon. Mm. Milton Friedman, you know, famous comment: over time, inflation is purely a monetary, mm. uh, always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. But it, that's a long-term story. It's like mm. saying the CAPE ratio will work. It will, but you might have to wait until 2033. Mm, mm, mm. But it still gives you a skew of symmetry, which I think is exciting mm, enough to mm. take the position. But it's not a quick gain. It's a very patient gain. And so over time, the higher rates are, the less likely you are to have high inflation. I think there is a correlation between those two things. 
because it dampens demand. Mm. But you can't dampen demand. If I give you a hundred, if I give you a hundred pounds, then charge you one pound more a year for interest, you feel richer. And that's what mm. COVID was. Doesn't yeah. matter if I charge you five pounds more a year for interest, yeah, yeah, yeah. you still feel richer because yeah. you have the cash. And so until you've worn down and spent that mm. money, what we called excess savings a year mm. ago, um, it can't really have an impact. And the delay, the, you know, the delay and variable lag is much more delayed this time around because of that stock of cash they printed before then tightening the price of money. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I think I said before to clients, I mean, had you told me two years ago that rates were going from naught to 5% within 15 months, I'd have said we'd have had enormous damage, yeah. both to financial markets and to the economy. Yeah. And we, I mean, yeah, sure. Like the Magnificent Seven, you know, Amazon was down 50%. Tesla was down 70, Netflix and mm. Meta were down 75%. So you did have a lot of damage last year in large parts of the market. Government bonds in the UK were down 25%. I mean, where's that on your bingo card? But broadly speaking, there hasn't been huge problems, have there? The housing market hasn't. Yeah. In fact, the house prices in the US are back at all-time highs. Yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary, really, sort of clients, to sort of sit with clients and say, well, it's not been a great two years. However, could have been a lot worse. Is that yeah. is a sort of element of if central banks cut rates a little bit next year, maybe not 125 basis points, maybe maybe you know half percent or one percent. Might they just get away without causing mayhem in markets and the economy? Yeah, or is that sort of optimistic? They might do. I mean, the bull case is that we have achieved a soft landing. Yeah, so oh, we've I had this. That phrase. No, but that, that's what you're talking about, right? That we've had the disinflation. <laughs> yeah. so we still got I mean, employment at good levels. We've already had a soft landing. Well, we're yeah, we are. Another cycle, we're one right? wheel it's, down on the soft landing, yeah. and we're just <laughs> gliding down. Yeah. Another five hundred base, five base point cuts. Another five hundred base points. But we're coming We've into been the soft landing. Aeroplanes with the children. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, my train, uh, <laughs> steam train coming for this market. Um, I'll try to sneak in as many as I can. Um, no, it's that. That's the base case now. Mm. Not not an outlier. That's yeah. what the market yeah. is assuming. I've literally just written my fact sheet. It says exactly this. It'll be in your inbox probably by the time you get back. Oh, good. Um, but yeah, that's that's what we think, that the market is pricing in a soft landing as the base case, the yeah. highest probability event. Yeah. We think yeah. it is a very, very thin landing strip, mm. yeah. and it's very yes. unlikely to be yeah. hit. Yeah, and well, I mean, as, as I said before we started, the theme of the pod has been episode one. Do we think there's going to be a recession? Yes. <laughs> Was that a year ago? Have we had a recession yet? No. So, uh, you know, but we've, portfolios are up. We've done fine. Yeah. You know, valuations... I think my observation is valuations in large areas of financial markets look okay. When you talk about cash yielding 5%, mm. short daily government bonds yielding 4, 4.5%, yeah. mm. UK equities yielding 10 UK small cap, take another love affair of this okay. pod, um, you know, super cheap. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think I think that the long-term future is pretty bright, but there's, there's clearly some kind of anomalies out there that we need uh, to be slightly worried Yeah, and even intra-market around the world, I mean, our... Our global equity fund is made up of businesses you've mostly heard of that are 50 or $100 billion each, 12 times earnings, 19% average earnings growth for the last seven years. Mm-hmm. They exist. Mm-hmm. They're there. They're trading. They're delivering. This year, we think those our companies in aggregate will grow 17%. So they're delivering. It's just they're not getting rewarded right now. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. If you take this approach, you can't hope to be rewarded every year. Yeah, yeah. And that's the difficulty. And some clients mm-hmm. may not like that as much. But over time, yeah. you can be much more confident in long-term outperformance mm. because of the charts we've shown. Yeah, yeah, good. Well, we need to get you out of here, so um, that's probably time. Um...
um, thank you, Freddie. Not at all. Thank you. Yeah, that was fantastic. Thank you. Really enjoyed enjoyed you being on. And uh, thank you for joining us. Um, Any questions or comments or anything you'd like to discuss, then get in touch. Uh, He's james.hughes, of course, tv.com. My email address is jonathan.raymond at quarterchivia.com. And we hope to see you next time. Thanks very much. Thank you.